Father Robert Spitzer is the former president of Gonzaga University and founder of the Magis Center. His books include Five Pillars of the Spiritual Life and Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. His new book is The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. That is our topic today. Uh, it's, it's a comprehensive study, uh, readable. I think Catholic students across the country should be having it as their, as their summer reading uh, plan. Uh, that said, welcome, Father Spitzer. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. An opening question. Is it impossible to accept or even understand the moral wisdom of the church really until we open not our minds, but our hearts fully to the love of God? There's no question that that is true. Um, if we're going to really accept um, uh, the church's teaching and know uh, because of the, uh, the love of Jesus Christ and, and, uh, and his gift of himself, that this is the path to salvation, um, that would be the ideal. However, we can do something uh, to help the process along. We can remove a lot of uh, hindrances and obstacles that have been placed um, by the culture in the path of a lot of young people. And that was my intention here. It wasn't really to try and use an intellectual argument uh, to convince somebody that they ought to listen to Christ and accept him, but at least stop attacking the church, stop attacking Jesus Christ for um, a so-called anachronistic ethic, when in point of fact, you can demonstrate with all secular university studies, archives of general psychiatry, etc., that uh, when you actually deviate from the church's teaching teachings, you will undermine not only your spiritual health, but your emotional health, relational health, and marital health. And you can prove that from purely secular studies. And that's what I attempted to do in this book, remove those obstacles so that we can concentrate on the fact that these lifestyles are exceedingly destructive, that the church has said um, are um, you know, contrary to Christ's will. They're destructive to us in our emotional lives. I mean, the depression levels, anxiety levels, the uh, suicide, suicidal ideation levels, the substance abuse levels skyrocket when we get into lifestyles uh, that are contrary to the church's teaching. And as I said, that's all secular studies. I think that's one of the strengths of the book. You actually bring in a lot of empirical evidence from you know, scientific studies that are fully in accord with the contemporary secular uh, academic uh, procedures. And we've got now all the evidence in the world after, what, 60 years of the sexual revolution and, and <laughs> other advents of modernity, we can see what it's actually done to, to people, especially to, to young people. These days, I mean, is, is the problem for many that the wisdom of the church is simply contrary, in spite of all that evidence you compile, it's contrary to the hundreds of messages youths receive every day from media, from social media, from peers, from movies, TV shows, songs. Is, is, are, 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 we, are we adrip? trying to work against a tidal wave. Well, that's true. We are working against a tidal wave, but we, we recently just put um, the contents of this book into a program uh, for high school students, uh, an, a senior year elective program on 
moral apologetics. It's called The Challenges of the Modern World, uh, a Catholic Response. We're trying to bring this just to bring the facts to the high school kids. We're not trying to force them to make a decision, but we have to get some data into our minds and into the minds and hearts of our kids uh, in order for them to start critically assessing that, as you put it, thousands of messages that they're getting from the culture every single day affirming this. But as we, as those kids are getting those messages affirming the lifestyles that are contrary to the church's teaching, at the very same moment, we are noticing that we, before COVID, right, we had a 63% increase in anxiety and depression among young people, a 56% increase in suicides mm-hmm. and so forth, a 24% increase in homicides before COVID. Now, after COVID, double that, mm-hmm. double that. And now, even after COVID, the acceleration continues. We're not just talking about an even kind of, you know, uh, like what we would call sort of a diagonal line going up. We're talking about a, par- a, a parabola. We're talking about acceleration uh, of suicides, homicides, depression, anxiety among young people. And you have to ask yourself the question, why? Well, all the studies in this book show precisely, you know, transgender, um, uh, you know, if you go on, for example, uh, gender affirming therapy, uh, you're going to get a tripling of your mortality rate, not to mention hmm. a huge uh, increase in depression and anxiety. If you go ahead with the sexual reassignment surgery, then after 10 years, you can expect a 20 times increase in suicides in that population. So that's like going from 0.6% in the normal population to 32%. Wow. You know, I mean, that's like uh, unbelievable, you know, that that uh, this is happening. Um, and, and you look at that and think, well, uh, what can we th- uh, say about that? Well, stop doing what is causing this radical increase in suicide. It's terrible for you. Taking hormones of the opposite sex with which you were born into this world is terrible for you. It's going to increase your mortality rate three times, etc. The same thing with homosexual lifestyles. I mean, you, you know, nobody's telling you you have to do anything. All we're saying, and nobody is certainly trying to marginalize people with same-sex attraction. Nobody's trying to marginalize somebody who has gender dysphoria. All we're trying to do is point out, if you follow through on what the culture tells you, here's what you can expect. You can expect a three times increase in depression rates, a 3.5 times increase in anxiety rates, a five times increase in panic disorders, a five to seven times increase in suicidal contemplation. And that would be in 40% of the population. So, you know, when you have a five to seven times increase in suicidal contemplation, that affects 40% of that population um, that is living a homosexual lifestyle. Now, there's something wrong with a lifestyle that is doing this. You know, there's so, you know, you look at it in a three times increase in, in major psychiatric uh, disorders um, and, and substance abuse is increasing by four times. You look at this, there's something wrong. The same thing with post-abortion syndrome. For years, right, we've been uh, t- told by the Guttmacher Institute, there's no such thing as, um, you know, a... Um, a uh, 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 you know, a uh, uh, you know, a major post-abortion syndrome. You know, some kind of a an effect, a negative effect on women's uh, you know uh, emotional health. Now, Priscilla Coleman comes and puts together this huge study involving three quarters of a million women, 
puts it the study together for the uh, British Journal of Psychiatry, and now it's on the Cambridge University website, but basically showing that, yeah, and, and 91% of the time, I, uh, I, I'm sorry, 81% of the time, you can expect that there's going to be, um, uh, you know, a, a decrease in emotional health on any woman uh, who has an abortion by comparison with women who bring their children to term or never got pregnant in the first place. So you look at that and you go, 81%, that's significant. And then you look, oh, a four times increase in suicides, a 2.5 times increase in suicidal uh, contemplation, a, a two times increase in, in substance abuse. I rest my case. I mean, every single one of these things, every one of the lifestyles that the church has indicated on behalf of Jesus Christ as a matter of interpretation of his moral teaching is unhealthy or is sinful um, um, in the words of the church um, or unnatural. Every one of them can by secular studies be shown virtually indubitably to be um, um, uh, lead, excuse me, to a huge decrease in emotional health, huge decrease in uh, marital religion uh, and um, relational health, and of course, a huge decrease in spiritual health. So, for example, you know, if you want to, um, uh, you know, the Pew survey did this huge, uh, you know, uh, um, a study of the um, uh, the effects, uh, spiritual effects um, of people who've uh, gone into a homosexual lifestyle. They declare themselves to be twice as likely to be atheists, half as likely to pray, half as likely to attend church services, half as likely um, to consider God important in their lives, and half as likely to read something from revealed scripture uh, like the Bible. So you look at that and go, that's not good. That's <laughs> not good for your emotional health or your spiritual health. And then you say, well, well, well what about the pornography? Yeah, the longer you read pornography, believe it or not, the more depressed you become. And the more you read pornography, uh, this huge University of Oklahoma study shows that your religious commitment goes down. And not only does the religious commitment go down, it goes down practically to zero once you become addicted. So it's almost like it's completely antithetical uh, to religious life, not to mention your emotional health as well. And then you start looking at cohabitation, the good old myth of cohabitation. The longer you cohabitate, the better off it will be for your marriage. But alas, the Rosler and Rosenfeld studies show exactly the opposite. The more you come, uh, uh, the longer the cohabitation period prior to the marriage, what do you do? You bring the sliding effect into your marriage, right? You bring what's called gender asymmetry effects into your marriage. So, you know, why do women cohabitate? They think it will help them get married sooner. Why do men cohabitate? They think it will delay uh, the inevitable marriage. And so <laughs> once you slide into it with those gender asymmetries still there, the man resenting the fact that he feels like he's getting pushed into the marriage that he didn't want in the first place, you're already putting a huge stressor into the mix. And then when you enter into a relationship, a cohabitating relationship, where the public commitment is not there and the intentionality toward family is not there, two major effects happen which totally affect the longevity and satisfaction of marriage if the cohabitation turns into a marriage in the future. And what are those two things? Number one, the decline of religion. The longer a couple cohabitates, the more they, they, they cease to practice their religion. So religious practice declines with the 
uh, amount of time in cohabitation. Now, this is really uh, of great concern because probably the major factor for long-lasting, satisfying marriages, besides the intention to commit, the intention to be self-sacrificial for one's spouse and children. Hmm. Beyond that thing, religion is the number one cause for a long-lasting and satisfying marriage. And by the way, that's reciprocal causality, right? In other words, a couple that prays together actually does stay together, the old uh, Father Peyton line, but also it is the case that the the strong couple that results is more likely to reinforce each other in their religious commitments in the long term. In other words, it has a positive effect on religious practice. So reciprocal um, causation in this case does uh, cause a strengthening of the marriage and a strengthening of religion simultaneously. Cohabitation blows it all apart. That's terrible for marriages. And the other thing with cohabitation um, that clearly is, is significant is that cohabitation, once you get in there into a long-lasting relationship, which does not have a public commitment to it, um, you know, that's there, the uh, commitment to family that's there, it's a very, very weak commitment. And therefore, that relationship breaks up very, very easily going into the future. So they hit a couple of stressors all at once, and boom, they just break up. They just say, this isn't working for me. But on the other, if you do in a marriage where you really do have the commitment to the family, the commitment to long-term relationship, uh, oftentimes with religion added in, then, of course, you can hit those stressors and you can manage them. But the, the fact is, if you've got a really weak, limping kind of relationship going into the marriage and you've got the gender asymmetry issue that the man, you know, resents the woman for pressurizing him, et cetera, et cetera. All these things, you put it together. Of course, previous cohabitating couples are going to break up sooner. That's just the way it is. And, yeah. and so uh, they do. They have less satisfying marriages. And, of course, as a result, they have a much shorter duration of marriages, resulting in a lot of divorces before seven years are up. So, you know, you just, you know, the church is teaching on premarital sex, you know. Again, you can correlate the number of sexual partners you have prior to the marriage with how much the divorce rate will be within seven years after the marriage. You can correlate it. So the more sexual partners you have before the marriage, the more you can be sure that your marriage will break up. And there's a nice little sliding scale um, table you can look at in the book uh, to, to see this. So it's just on every single solitary score, every single major controversial issue, secular studies. And by the way, I took the majority of my secular studies for the transgender issue and the homosexual lifestyle issue. I took them from uh, Holland and from Sweden, two cultures very uh, friendly to uh, the transgender and um, homosexual lifestyle. Right. You know, you, you, you go deeper into some of the moral wisdom of the church. One, one important point you cite raised by St. Paul, which says that what we do with our bodies affects our souls. And you, you would extend that in secular terms, what we do with our bodies is going to affect our personality, our, our mind, our, our mental, emotional condition. Does it astonish you, Father, as it does me, that so many intelligent people believe that, say, 
a habit of serial one-night stands does not have any corrosive effect on the spirit, or, or in secular terms, that it doesn't erode one's capacity to form a solid long-term relationship. How can so many intelligent, liberal, secular people continue to think that, eh, do what you want to do, it's not really going to... Anyway. Yeah, no, the victimless sin thing. I mean, I've just seen it, especially with respect to the uh, um, to the um, premarital uh, partners issues, and certainly with the pornography issue. Um, they think it's not going to have any effect, and they do call it a victimless sin uh, in both uh, cases. You know, well, it's, we're consenting adults; it won't affect us. It does affect you, and as a matter of fact, again, the more um, the premarital partners you have, or the more you're looking at pornography. Um, according to, like, I'm telling a hundred studies, the emotional, the capacity for emotional intimacy simply gets dull. In other words, you don't care about emotional intimacy anymore. What you care about is sexual gratification. And that is affecting, like, the pleasure um, modes of, of channels uh, in your brain. And so what, what you're doing is you're ingraining those pleasure channels um, to expect a kind of a jolt of elation, which of course shortly goes away because there, there's no long standingness to, there's no depth to it. It's just like a, you know eating a, a you know a, a, a great steak with a Chateau Margaux, a wine to top her off. Hmm. You know you, you get the charge, uh, but then it, when it goes away, as, as uh, my good mentor Saint Ignatius of Loyola would say, there's nothing to replace it but emptiness. And that, uh, you know, can be seen again and again and again, that people just have to get more and more and more to be satisfied. So they, they, they disvalue emotional intimacy because they're hooked on the pleasure. They, you know, hooked on the adventure, hooked on the ego gratification, and they get these temporary satisfactions. But the deeper stuff of love, the deeper stuff, of emotional intimacy, the deeper stuff of caring for people and, and knowing that people really do care about you, the deeper stuff of having an emotionally intimate relationship with your children. You know, people who are pornography addicts just don't, you know, they, they can't form the bond with their children emotionally because they're waiting to get the next fix of elation from the porn. And so you, you look at this and you go, oh my gosh, this, this, can you prove this? But secular, yes, yes, you absolutely can. And I've cited uh, a zillion studies in the book that show exactly this. And by the way, it really causes a steep increase in sexually aggressive behavior, which is leads to not only sexually risky behavior, but also to harassing behavior on those people's part. It should be of no surprise that people who watch, uh, who look at pornography more than four times a week are going to have a divorce rate that's 2.5 times higher than the normal population. But now everybody says, well, this is victimless. It's not victimless. It's not victimless to your marital partner. <clears throat> it's not victimless to your job because you have basically a, a, a 1.65 times increase in losing your job because, of course, you start... Hmm looking at pornography on, on the work site and do all these other kinds of things. You, you think, you know, you have all these, everything you're, you're doing is being recorded. So, so basically your employer can, can reach in and see 
or what sites you're looking at and everything else, the risky sexual behavior parts of it, you know, I mean, yeah, job loss, you, you could almost predict that. And of course, the detachment from the kids, it's a thoroughgoingly unhappy life. But the, the point is, is victimless? Oh, no, it's not victimless to you. It's not victimless to the people around you. It's not victimless to your family. It's not victimless victimless uh, to your workplace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just one big disaster area, and and so uh, I agree with you. I think again, it's the cultural messages are telling people basically here's how to commit suicide, but they don't use the word. They basically say, you know, um, this will make you happy. You know, you can do it. You're free. It's your life. Go for it. Go for the hedonism. Well, if you go for the hedonism, if you go for the unfulfilled relationship, you can just be sure it'll kill your soul. It'll kill your capacity for commitment, kill your capacity for intimacy, kill your capacity for emotional bonding with your spouse and your children, kill your capacity uh, and your, for your work ethic, kill your capacity uh, to, to seek the higher values of religion and to seek the higher values of eternity, to seek the higher values of serving your, your fellow human being. Hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, pornography addicts are not out there uh, beating the street to help the people in the food shelters. I mean, they don't have time. Got to get another jolt. It's an addiction. We we got to, you know, it's 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 truly it's it's so it's tragic, is what it is. Yeah. But the, the 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 point is, is I, I know I'm uh, you know too emotional to, to say, but I'm looking at our culture just sitting there breaking apart. Jesus Christ is the solution. The moral teaching that the church has been authentically teaching for the last you know century. That's going against the autonomous freedom, sexual revolution stuff that has led to, you know, huge increases, you know, seven times increases in forcible rapes and sexual harassment. Oh, the sexual revolution has been so great. But you pointed right to it. You said that it's separating the body from the soul. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's acting like the body's not unified to the soul. It's mm -hmm. acting like you can do anything with your body and it's not going to seep right into your soul. It's the soul that appropriates the relationship with God, the soul that is the nest of conscience, the soul that is, um, you know, the, 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 the self-consciousness and empathy uh, that is given over to other people in genuine intimacy and care and generativity. All of these things are getting that's nested in the soul, but the body definitely affects what you do with your body. It just affects all those things in your soul. And as such, it affects not only your happiness now, not only your eternal salvation later, but the happiness of everybody else around you. And we're killing ourselves. We're killing not just ourselves, but our, the people around us, killing our future and above all, killing our culture. When will the end be? When will we, with our identity politics, because we're so devoid of anything meaningful in religion, devoid of anything meaningful in morality, devoid of anything meaningful in metaphysics and transcendence, devoid of anything meaningful on the level of conscience and moral reflection, devoid of anything significant except our freedom, except our sexual expression, except how we look in public, except our Instagram profile, 
You know, we're so devoid of everything. All we got left is a bunch of identity politics instead of, you know, acknowledging St. Augustine's statement, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Chapter two, you, you turn to th these issues, uh, gender change, gender fluidity. Fifteen years ago, Father, did you ever think you would have to lay out the, the church's position on, on these issues? Did you, did you see this coming? I honestly did not. I've been so shocked, you know, by looking at, you know, the, well, we, I mean, I, maybe I could have predicted it because of the fluidity of our morals uh, within the culture. But, you know, honestly, I did not see it coming. I did not think that gender dysphoria would be elevated uh, to something that was, first of all, natural to the human species. <clears throat> I never thought that gender-affirming therapy would be required, uh, even uh, against parental protest, yeah. things of that nature. Could never have expected this. This is just, it is a result of the autonomous freedom movement. It is a result um, of the uh, uh, sexual revolution, there's no doubt. But ideological politics are part of this as well. I don't have to tell you, you know, that if you play to the sexual revolution in your um, uh, party's political ideology, if you play to the autonomous freedom thing without any responsibility to morals, to religion, to the deeper part of the human soul, you are literally playing to the undermining of the human person and the undermining of the culture. That's just the way it is. But I never saw it coming. I never saw that this political agenda could be so vast, so deep, so anti-religious, so anti what I would call mainstream morality at the time. But we're going to pay the price for it. And the reason that we're going to pay the price is because uh, at the end of the day, not only can you, you can't just do this to your soul and do this to the culture, but now we're seeing, for example, hey, wait a minute, why are Great Britain, Finland, Sweden, and all these European countries are reversing track, right? They are literally turning around and saying, wait a minute, the risks of this kind of gender-affirming therapy, we're not talking about sexual reassignment surgery, just gender-affirming therapy, giving hormones of the, of the opposite sex than when you were born, giving that to a person is going to have such negative effects, the risks far outweigh the benefits. So all the forerunners of the transgender movement are now, they have all reversed their course. And now the American Pediatric Association, I think it was three or four days ago, came out and said, well, you know, we just can't follow the European lead. We have to do our own research. I, I saw that, yes. Yeah, kick the can down the road, right? Yeah. Well, you know, when you make one good point uh, uh, in this chapter where you say, you know, to assume that, you know, it's really a girl inside a boy's body. You accept that, even though and the body is physically healthy, is really to say that God made a mistake. God miscreated that, that that individual. I think that's a very a very good point. But let me finish with one practical question, Father. Yeah. Uh, what if a uh, a priest has a mother, uh, maybe a mother and a father? Often, it's just a mother. Uh, in fact come in with uh, uh, a 12-year-old boy 
and both of them say he, he's really a girl. Mm-hmm. How does a priest respond to that, to that claim, that situation? I, I would say that, you know, you have to be very, very honest and talk about what are the causes of, you know, these um, uh, gender uh, dysphoric uh, feelings uh, that the boy has. The real causes are not, as has been shown by the Johns Hopkins study, the two professors there um, uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, show, it's not anything in the brain, it's not anything genetic, there is no physical link um, to being a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. So what are the real causes? Well, according to Zucker and Bradley, the real causes are threefold. Number one, about uh, 40 to 60 percent, depending on the full surveys you use, of the kids who express gender dysphoria are physically and sexually abused uh, previously. So that's a huge uh, area of correlation is physical abuse. So let's just round it to 50% of the kids have been physically abused. It is also linked by Zucker Bradley uh, to, in, well, tremendous anxiety within the family. So it affects, you know, um, opposite gender. So if the mother for example, is feeling tremendous anxiety in the family, feeling uh, aggression and uh, suppressed anger, or is just plain depressed, disappointed, constantly talking about this uh, to the little child. The boy, not so much the girl, but the boy child will basically say, well, I know the problem. The problem is me. Uh, I was born a boy. She needs a girl to be happy. So if I could just get, you know, um, uh, look like a girl, my mom would be really, really happy, and her anxiety and depression, of course, he's not going to say it in those words, will lift. But in his own little infantile logic, he's going to think that he's the cause, and the sex change is the way out for mom, the family, and himself. So, and the, the opposite, if it's the father's anxiety, the girl, again, uh, will think, uh, I'm the wrong sex, I need to be more like dad, and then everything will be okay. Um, There's a third area, and that's latent homosexual feelings. So there might be some feelings, same-sex attraction on the part of boys or girls that then combines in with the the sexual abuse, the anxiety in the family, and so forth. Uh, You put all the causes together. These are things that are treatable by therapeutic means. So instead of encouraging a, a young child Uh, to go through. We should do what Sweden and Finland and Great Britain and all these countries that are reversing track. Right now, we should be saying to them, let's get some therapy if you've been physically or sexually abused. Let's take a look at the anxiety level in the household, see if we can delimit that anxiety level. And of course, you can treat same-sex attraction feelings. You can show how to live uh, with them and and modulate them uh, into, you know, healthy means. All these things are therapeutically treatable. If you do treat them, the odds of the boy are going back to his um, uh, natural gender and uh, natural sex and the girl going back to hers uh, by the time they reach adolescence is very good, very good. So, you know, um, I'm not sure what the percentage is, uh, but it's, I think it's in my book. Yeah. And the main thing, though, if you, in, if you do not do that, you in, if the priest, let's say, encourages it, well, I guess, you know, you ought to go ahead and do that, uh, you know, if that's the only way you'll be happy. If you encourage it before adolescence, that kid will fix on that solution as the only solution. 
Remember, his frontal cortex or her frontal cortex is not even half developed here. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the, the, the seat of judgment for the human uh, 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 mentation. So, of course, they depend on parents to have a, a, a you know, a more, you know, um, uh, you know, less emotional judgment and, and so forth. So the idea uh, that is there is if the priest can just say, hold on here, the, the I, you know, you know, if you kind of t- try to find a therapeutic solution and just don't agree uh, to do anything like gender affirming therapy or uh, sexual reassignment surgery um, until, you know, that child is out of your control, he will probably revert back to his normal um, uh, desire uh, and his normal um, uh, uh, sense of his own sexuality, his own gender, um, as he moves forward. And uh, um, uh, those Johns Hopkins studies give some uh, numbers and percentages there of how effective the therapy can be. If you don't treat the real causes, but instead just encourage the person to go ahead and do it, then you get into the crisis that Sweden and Finland, Great Britain, etc., are now feeling. And that is, we're getting so many detransitioners and so many lawsuits and so many, um, you know, the, 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 the so-called solution, you know, is far worse than the problem. And so now we've got the problem of how can we detransition somebody who has permanently wrecked themselves? Yeah. How can we, uh, you know, and the anxiety levels, of course, once, you know, you get 10 years after that surgery, all those anxiety levels, which have been untreated, as Zucker Bradley and many others are saying, you don't treat the other things like the, the sexual abuse and the, um, the anxiety in the household. So that anxiety keeps on going. Then, of course, 10 years after the sexual reassignment surgery, all of a sudden you've got buyer's remorse. Hey, my anxiety has returned. It's compounded. And now I did this all to myself and, and I can't reverse it. I mean, my life is ruined. It's over. Now you see the 20 times increase in suicide rates. Yeah. So just I beg these priests who get these kinds of cases, I'd say, please try to counsel, um, you know, that uh, a therapeutic option. Do not encourage uh, the, the, the child, uh, to, you know, to believe that um, sexual reassignment uh, or gender from therapy is the way uh, to overcome, you know, their, uh, their uh, gender dysphoria and the anxieties of gender dysphoria. Try to get the other items uh, treated. And normally the biological, um, uh, uh, you know, um, the identification with the, the biological sex will be The book is The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. Father Spitzer, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so very much for having me.